BMW. For over a century, those three little letters have meant sporting performance, precision engineering, and above all, cars built for those of us who simply love to drive. And yet, in 1959, BMW nearly ceased to exist. So how did the company pull back from the brink to become the ultimate driving machine? I'm Maurice Merrick, and I'll tell you all about it, coming up on this episode of Horsepower Heritage. You might already have a car collection, but do you have a racing car collection? If you've ever dreamed of the ultimate racing stable, there is a way. That's where Model Citizen Diecast comes in. They sell collector-grade scale model cars from manufacturers like Amalgam, AutoArt, Mini Champs, and others. So for your racing stable, how about the 1991 Le Mans-winning Mazda 787B, or a Porsche 917 in Martini livery, or a Lancia Stratos rally car? Model Citizen also carries iconic street machines, like Kyosho's super-detailed Toyota FJ60 Land Cruiser. It's a big model in 118th scale, with doors that open and wheels that steer. Just go to ModelCitizenDieCast.com and use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout for 10% off your order. Limitations apply. That's ModelCitizenDieCast.com. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. All right. Well, greetings to you. I see we've got a ton of new listeners out there from places like Naples, Italy, all the way to Hong Kong, from Santiago, Chile to Tokyo, Japan. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And please help spread the word by sharing the podcast with your friends. If you were around in the 1980s, then you remember that owning a BMW at the time was a massive status symbol, although not in my case. I had a pretty beat-up 1976-2002, and the only people that were looking at me were laughing. But nevertheless, the company had incredible success with cars like the BMW 325i, the 535i, and that sexy 635 CSI. And then there was the M3, the M5, and M6, high-performance versions from the motorsport division of BMW. Driving one of these cars said something about you, that you were refined, that you liked spirited driving, and that you probably didn't use your turn signals. And some people hated BMWs and their drivers because they saw them as wealthy, arrogant, and impatient behind the wheel. It was a polarizing image for sure, and an image that most car companies would kill for, actually, because the last thing you would want is for consumers to have no opinion whatsoever. That would mean you're not having an impact on the marketplace. The image of BMW was more than just marketing, of course. The cars really were as good as they claimed. And the story of how BMW got there is brilliant and unlikely. So let's do a really quick origin story. The Bavarian Motor Works began making cars in 1928, and before that they'd built aircraft engines and motorcycles, and even marine and agricultural engines. In the 20s and 30s, the company chased performance, with multiple speed records and competition models, and even some really cool streamlined motorcycles. 
During World War II, production again shifted to aircraft engines, eventually including early jet engines, as well as the R-75 motorcycle, which had a sidecar that was connected to the bike with a powered axle, making it two-wheel drive. And like many German companies, BMW used slave labor in its wartime production. So when the Germans surrendered to the Allied forces, BMW was forbidden from building vehicles or engines of any kind, and the technology they developed was forfeited as war reparations. For example, in England, the Bristol Airplane Company went into the car business, essentially building copies of pre-war BMWs for the first couple of years. In fact, the Bristol BMW inline six-cylinder was used until 1961, not just in Bristol's, but in other cars as well. Meanwhile, BMW survived just after the war by producing cast aluminum pots and pans and air compressor parts and other industrial components. They even made bicycle frames. And they did all the service and repair work on vehicles used by the Allied Occupation Forces. When the company was finally permitted to once again build cars and motorcycles in 1951, there were choices to be made. They could build a car under license from another manufacturer, they could return to one of their pre-war designs, or they could fall back on what they knew best by building a well-performing luxury model. And that's exactly what they did. The result was the BMW 501, a six-cylinder luxury sedan aimed squarely at competing with Mercedes-Benz, hopefully so, but at a lower price point. But that car was immediately too heavy and underpowered, and the 501 had questionable styling, and it cost four times what the average German citizen earned in a year. Not surprisingly, it sold at a feeble pace. A V8 engine was already in the development pipeline, and that would solve the performance problem. And there was optimistic talk of a luxury sports car model. But BMW needed cash. And the solution, at least for that moment, was a little bubble car called the Isetta. Renzo Revolta was an Italian engineer and industrialist whose company, ESO, built everything from refrigerators to motor scooters. And about the time the 501 went into production... Revolta was developing the Isetta, sort of a half car, half motorcycle. In fact, they called it a quadricycle because it did have four wheels. It also had seating for two and a single door, which was actually the entire front end of the thing. The steering column articulated to swing with the door, and what you do is you step into an Isetta like you're settling into a love seat. The Isetta wasn't really a hit in Italy for some reason, though, so Revolta decided to license the design, and they were built by many other companies all over the world, but most successfully by BMW, who made so many changes that the parts were no longer interchangeable with the Italian version. First, they used a single-cylinder motorcycle engine from the R25, and then later, an air-cooled 600cc twin. The Isetta sold enough units to keep BMW afloat, at least for a time. And yet, as soon as the Isetta was beginning to help with cash flow, two ambitious projects were already underway that would nearly kill the company. The first was the 503, a luxury grand touring car. The second was the 507, a luxury sports roadster. 
and probably, by the way, one of the most beautiful cars of the 1950s. They were developed in parallel, starting in the autumn of 1954, and in no small measure at the suggestion of a fellow named Max Hoffman. Hoffman was an Austrian who'd raced cars in Europe and sold a variety of luxury brands in Vienna before the war. But he was also half-Jewish. Luckily, he escaped the Nazis and went to New York. And after the war, he became the sole U.S. importer for Jaguar, Volkswagen, Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, and BMW. Hoffman had a remarkable way of sensing what American buyers wanted, even before they knew what they wanted. In fact, he might be the most influential figure in the sports car world in the 1950s. For instance, on Max Hoffman's suggestion, Porsche created the 356 Speedster. And after he insisted that Mercedes build a road-going version of the W194 racing car, and they declined to do so, he drove his point home by ordering a thousand units. His confidence was supreme. Mercedes relented, and the 300 SL Gullwing was born. So perhaps BMW had a fear of missing out, because at about the same time that the 356 Speedster and 300 SL were appearing in American showrooms, BMW was approving the 503 and 507 projects. And in less than two years, both were ready for the U.S. market. But it was a case of too much, too soon. Because by the mid-1950s, the West German economy was booming. But labor and production costs were also climbing, which drove up the price for these hand-built cars. Max Hoffman, in fact, had set a price point of $5,000 for the 507, about $50,000 today. But because of rising costs, the sticker price more than doubled, and that far outpaced even the 300 SL. And compared to Mercedes, BMW had almost no brand recognition in the U.S. So they lost money on every car. Just 413 503s and 253 507s were ever built. And BMW found itself in the hole, to the tune of 15 million Deutschmarks, and its creditors had lost patience. During a December 1959 shareholders meeting, some of the executive board members were pushing to sell out to Daimler-Benz, or even declare bankruptcy and dissolve BMW entirely. But many shareholders weren't ready to quit, including one prominent figure who saw through the fog of this crisis. His name was Herbert Quant and he held 30% of BMW's shares. In fact, he owned large stakes in about 200 different companies. It wasn't a matter of BMW lacking quality or talent. It was really about product planning. BMW had been fighting the headwinds blowing through the changing auto industry all throughout the 50s, from technology to consumer taste. And Quant must have seen that himself. So he decided to increase his holdings in BMW and soon had 50% of the company in his hands. And a coalition of other shareholders joined him. It was an enormous risk, but there were some reasons for optimism. There was a new small car in the works, the BMW 700. With its three-box design and conventional layout, it was far less quirky than the Isetta. And tens of thousands had been ordered by the time Quant came to the rescue. The designer was Giovanni Michelotti, who already had scores of Ferraris, Maseratis, and Lancias to his credit. 
some of the most beautiful Italian cars ever built. So with the 700, BMW began to climb out of the hole. It was a fairly attractive little car with good gas mileage and roomy enough to make it practical for German families. Now the other thing they had going for them was talent. Most notably, Wilhelm Hofmeister, the design chief, and Alex von Falkenhausen, engine. Both men had been with BMW since the 1930s, but now they really had the freedom to show their brilliance. It's been said that Herbert Quant valued independent thinking and gave his people the room to take ownership rather than just taking orders. And it must have been in this atmosphere that Willie and Alex found themselves because they were about to do some amazing things. In what BMW called Die Neue Klasse, or the new class, their teams would completely reimagine the company's identity. Hofmeister's vision was a car of unibody construction with clean modern lines, a car that would be far more efficient in both dimensions and use of materials. And he wanted to establish a more convincing corporate design language, something the company had really never succeeded in doing up to that point. Falkenhausen's task was to come up with a sturdy 1.5-liter four-cylinder engine. He already had a great deal of experience in design, testing, and racing, and for a short time in the late 40s and early 50s, he left BMW to build his own racing cars under the AFM badge. Falkenhausen and his team designed an overhead cam engine with hemispherical combustion chambers and an aluminum cylinder head. It was simple, strong, and with room to expand displacement, it would have a long life in production. In fact, that engine was kind of to BMW as the small block V8 was to Chevrolet. As the 1960s opened, the last of the old breed of BMWs made its debut. It was a body-on-frame coupe with the old pushrod V8, and they called it the 3200 CS. Overall, sort of a forgettable car unless you're a real BMW nerd, but it did have a significant influence on the new class. But why, you might ask? Well, it was the styling, not the underlying architecture, but the styling that foretold the future because it was designed by none other than Nuccio Bertoni and his young apprentice, Giorgetto Giugiaro. Among the design elements it established were the modernization of BMW's traditional twin kidney radiator grills, a tall greenhouse, a lower trunk, hood, and belt line, and in general, the rectilinear appearance of the coming generation of cars. By the way, rectilinear is just a fancy automotive styling term for straight lines. But the most significant styling element of the 3200 CS was probably the thin C-pillar with its distinctive dogleg angle at the base. And that came to be known as the Hofmeister kink. And it has appeared on every BMW since, including the M1. So the new class combined Italian styling flair under the careful eye of Wilhelm Hofmeister and that inspired Falkenhausen engine. And what emerged was the BMW 1500, a sober and modern four-door sedan. The performance was decidedly modest, at least at first, but what it lacked in acceleration was exceeded by its handling, comfort, and impeccable construction. When the new class BMW was unveiled to the public at the 1961 Frankfurt Auto Show, it hit like a lightning bolt. Orders poured in and BMW was on its way again. 
Upgraded engine versions followed. First, the 1800, and then the competition 1800 TISA, and then supposedly under Max Hoffman's recommendation, BMW built a two-door model in 1966. This was the BMW 1600-2, or simply just the 1600 as it was badged for a time in the U.S., And this brings up the fact that BMW's nomenclature was pretty confusing at the time. And that stemmed from the fact that all of these cars had the same engine, but with different displacements and a different number of doors. So you might have a 1600 four-door and a 1600 two-door. It was kind of a mess. Anyway, back to the 1600. A high-performance version, the 1600 Ti, had dual side-draft Solex carburetors. But about that same time, emission regulations were taking effect in the United States, which prevented importation of the TI to the U.S. And this was at a time when every automaker was courting the U.S. market. BMW just couldn't afford to be locked out. Falkenhausen's answer was to increase the displacement to two liters. Remember, he had wisely planned for the expansion of this engine. And thus, the BMW 2002 was born. American buyers were thrilled. For the April 1968 issue of Car and Driver magazine, the now legendary writer David E. Davis Jr. penned a brilliant and hilarious piece entitled, Turn Your Hymnals to 2002. And he really did sing the praises of the car. In fact, that column probably did more to help BMW's U.S. sales than any other single factor. It was an inspired piece of writing full of evocative little gems like this one. Quote, Down at the club, Piggy Tremalian and Bucko Pinoyer and all their twit friends buy shrieking little two-seaters with ragtops and skinny wire wheels, unaware that somewhere, someday, some guy in a BMW 2002 is going to blow them off so bad that they'll henceforth leave every stoplight in second gear and never drive on a winding road again as long as they live. That is good stuff. In 1972, BMW released the 2002 TII with mechanical fuel injection, and that was the one to have. And in 1974, the cars got some styling changes, including a new grill and square taillights. That same year, they built the boisterous 2002 Turbo, the first car to wear the signature red, blue, and purple motorsport stripes, and also a very obnoxious turbo script put backwards on a decal on the front of the car. The idea was that the guy in front of you would see the word turbo coming up rapidly in his rearview mirror and get the hell out of the way. And that didn't go over so well. That was considered a fairly inappropriate flex. And the timing of the 2002 turbo was also not so great because of the gasoline crisis. So only 1,672 were built before BMW pulled the plug. Overall, the O2 series had a great run, though, and it lasted 11 years. Of course, the O2 series was just the beginning, because by 1968, the success of the new class enabled BMW to design two more outstanding models, the E3 sedan and an elegant coupe, the E9. Both cars had a new inline six-cylinder engine, which started at 2.5 liters and eventually went all the way up to 3.5. And it was with these cars that BMW finally became a serious challenger to Mercedes-Benz. They certainly weren't as luxurious, but they didn't have to be. Their performance did all the talking. 
BMW was a brand you could count on to deliver certain things, like rear-wheel drive, a satisfying manual gearbox, gobs of smooth power, and room for four, and an absolute commitment to the driving experience. In fact, I remember years ago when someone in the press mentioned to a BMW executive the injustice that Toyotas had cup holders while BMWs didn't. And the executive said that one had no business drinking any beverage in a BMW because driving was the only thing that mattered. And now I have to tell you about one of the most interesting characters at BMW in the early 1970s, and that's Bob Lutz who went over there from Opel, which was owned by General Motors. Now, Lutz is one of the most outspoken and admired figures in the auto industry. He's a former Marine Corps aviator. He's got an MBA from Berkeley. He had a long and storied career in the auto business. He's American, but he grew up in Switzerland, and he speaks fluent German. He's also an enthusiastic car guy, which is surprisingly rare among automobile executives and he definitely left his mark on BMW during his brief tenure. Lutz can take credit for the 2002 Turbo and the R90S, which saved the motorcycle division, and it ranks among the world's first superbikes. He's also responsible for creating a logical way to name the various BMW models. Remember, I told you what a mess it had been in the early 60s. So Bob Lutz came up with the three-digit formula. 3 Series, 5 Series, and so on. Now, he helped form the motorsport division to get BMW back into factory-sponsored racing, and Lutz helped coin one of the most successful advertising slogans in automotive history. You all know it, the ultimate driving machine. When the styling department floated the initial sketches of the first-generation 3 Series, it turns out they had abandoned the twin kidney grills which were a BMW trademark since the beginning. Lutz intervened and had them all start over with a clean sheet design and the kidney grills were saved. Can you imagine any BMW over the last 40 years without kidneys? I think not. And finally, it was Lutz who led the company to establish BMW of North America, wrestling the importation of the cars away from Max Hoffman, who, according to Lutz, once tried to bribe him with a secret Swiss bank account and a kickback on every car, as long as he could remain the sole importer. When that didn't work, Hoffman suggested that certain New York mafiosi would be very unhappy if they couldn't buy their BMWs from him. Well, it didn't scare Lutz one bit. They finally got rid of Hoffman after a protracted legal battle and lots of money, But the creation of BMW of North America marked the moment of truth for the brand. In 1980, they sold just under 36,000 cars in the U.S. In 2019, that number was 325,000. Today, BMW is worth about $260 billion. Herbert Quant died in 1982, but the Quant family remains in control of the company. Now, I could go on and tell you all about the BMWs of the 80s and 90s or motorsport or where the company is going in the future, but those are all stories for another time. Instead, I'll end it today by mentioning a little mythology surrounding the BMW logo, those familiar blue and white quadrants with a black outer ring. 
The traditional Bavarian blue and white colors date all the way back to the 13th century coat of arms of Otto I, Duke of Bavaria. And for decades, the story was that the BMW logo symbolized a spinning airplane propeller because an early advertisement, probably in about 1929, showed the superimposed logo over the nose of an airplane in flight. So for decades, this folklore persisted. And for some reason, the company said nothing. But BMW took the opportunity to clarify this misconception in 2020 when it unveiled an updated logo that's now being used in its corporate communications. The new logo is minimalist with no black rings surrounding the blue and white quadrants. And they say it's intended for brand communication only. In other words, it won't be applied to any cars. I'm not so sure about that because I think it's pretty obvious the real message in changing the logo is that the EV and alternative fuel technology is the future and they want consumers to begin thinking of the brand in that way. After all, who knows where BMW or any car maker for that matter will be in 10, 20 or 30 years. In fact, Bob Lutz wrote an article a couple of years ago basically predicting the demise of the auto industry within five years. His timeline's a little bit off, but I'm not so sure he's wrong. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and leave me a five-star review. That'll help me reach more gearheads like you. Until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.